we're back. This is Media Democracy. It's a podcast about politics, the media, and the policies of the media. This is part two of an interview that we did with Juliet Jakes. And we'll go into that fairly soon. But before we do that, I'm going to have to chat with my co-host, Tom Mills. Tom, how are you doing? I am well and good. Thank you. Same as always, really. You're sort of you're muddling through, aren't you, Tom? Yeah, <laughs> muddling through this crazy thing we call life. You know? Crazy thing we call life. Exactly. But there was a bit of a breakthrough, wasn't there, at the weekend? Um, I'm going to tee this up for you because I want your reaction to it as as if live for our listeners. But um, Rebecca Long-Bailey came out quite strongly in favour of a democratised and publicly accountable BBC. Tom, how are you feeling? Yeah, well, it's good, isn't it? It's nice to see. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a great series of proposals. I mean, for people who missed it, and you may well have missed it because basically most of the media completely ignored it. Um, there was an article in The Times, which I know is a newspaper you're quite fond of, Dan. Paywall. Um, <laughs> behind the paywall of The Times, yeah. What is the deal uh, with putting stuff behind a paywall if you're on the left? I just... Uh, anyway. I, well, I, I assume the, the strategy here is that if you put something in The Times, then the, the right-wing media won't, won't ignore it. So I'm assuming the strategy here was we're, we're given exclusive to The Times and then the BBC will follow. Um but that didn't actually happen. That didn't happen, did it? So basically, so basically, the media ignored it and the left didn't have access to it um, unless you've got some sort of institutional um, account at the Times or, or or maybe you're a Times reader, in which case I don't really know why you're either A on the left or, or B reading the Times. But anyway, we don't need to go into that. Um, but but right. the point let's, is... Let's flesh out a bit of what, um, what she did say behind the paywall. Yeah. Um, so what, what she said was that she didn't think that the left should be defending um, an institution um, that is seen as part of the establishment, like, you know, just for just to, to maintain as it is that the BBC wasn't needed a radical reform and that defending public service broadcasting meant addressing some of those problems. And that meant um, reforming the BBC in accordance with what she you know, referred to as a broader democratic revolution. So it's part of this, the same sort of agenda, left agenda, really, of democratising society, making these institutions like the BBC um, more accountable, which is obviously, from the perspective of this podcast, is, is music to our ears. Um, and it's really, you know, it, it's really good news. Um, this has been sort of an intervention, I suppose, not only in the Labour leadership um, uh, process, um, which we, which we can talk about in in future shows, but also a, a widespread debate about the future of the BBC, which is going on at the moment um, because of intimidating noises that are coming from the Johnson government. So I think the left is at a moment now where it's trying to think about what is our relationship with the BBC? How should we position ourselves in those kinds of struggles around the future of public broadcasting? And how should we position ourselves in terms of um, a right-wing government going after the BBC? And what I've been arguing um, and is that it, we should be defending the principle of public service broadcasting, but that it needs to be updated, that we need to take seriously some of the problems at the BBC and that we shouldn't be offering any kind of blank, she- blank check to, to the BBC as it currently exists. Because, um, I mean, for, for substantive reasons, and I think, you know, if you want to be cynical about it, also for strategic reasons, because I think, frankly, I don't think it's going to be effective um, to 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 make arguments in, in defence of the BBC that don't take into account the re- reality of the institution. And moreover, I think if if the attack is coming from this sort of so-called populist right, okay, like the sort of anti-elitist thrust that seems to drive contemporary conservatism, I don't think a, a, a response that says, oh, you know, the BBC is is wonderful because it, you know it's not it's not Fox News and and so on. This sort of high-minded, starry-eyed defence of the BBC is going to be particularly politically effective. So, you know, I I, I think it's good. Like, I mean, Rebecca Long Bailey obviously gets that. Um, I think it's a sort of open question, number one, as to, you know, what proportion or of, of the left shares that particular view. And I think this is still a very live conversation. I think it's probably one we're going to get back to. Or number two, to what extent, I suppose, liberals and the right are going to take any notice of this um, th- this idea at all. And I think... One of the things, and this is just my sense of the sort of political moment we're in, is that there's, you know, in the in the wake of the 2019 election, there's a sort of 
um, redrawing of the battle lines, you know, between liberalism and um, and a sort of uh, re-energized conservatism. And I just have this like, sort of terrible feeling that we're going to be drawn into the, the kind of stupidity that, you know, people on American podcasts spend all their time shouting about. You know, this is sort of the, the Chapo Trap House thing, isn't it? Of just shouting about liberals and their sort of ineffectual response to... to um, to conservatism and I just yeah. sort of have this dreadful feeling that this is the road like that we're going to find ourselves on I mean um quite apart from the policy sort of policy debates around the BBC which um which we're as I said like we're going to be talking about um endlessly I think on this podcast and, and elsewhere if people can bear to hear me go on about it for any longer well it's interesting wasn't it the, like the the media did like nothing more than than to ignore substantive critiques of the media and reform proposals for the media right but but it was interesting the, the quality of the way that Rebecca Long Bailey was ignored this time around because later the same day as far as I can tell um, some unnamed source close to the Prime Minister um, briefed the Sunday Times um, telling them that um, the BBC was going to be dismembered. It's going to have its local radio stations taken off it. Everything was going to be raised to the ground in a kind of um, Armageddon for for the public for public service broadcasting, and that completely dominated um, the conversation to the extent that they, any, there was anyone talking about the media on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday of this week. It was all about um, the way that the Conservative Party was had it in for the BBC and the Liberals responded by saying how much they, they it had to be defended against this vandalism and so on and so forth. Yep. And a couple of days later, there was another front page story saying, oh, yeah, um, this this source was going off piste. Uh, Boris Johnson, the prime minister, doesn't believe any of it. It doesn't have his warrant, as it were. And the whole but the whole thing had the effect of completely displacing and providing a kind of an excuse almost to not talk about what Rebecca Long Bailey was saying, which is that, you know, the media are changing. Um, the BBC's current form is, is not defensible. Um, we need to, to make it much more accountable. We need to make it much more um, to integrate it much more closely with its audiences and with the, with the sort of the public if it's to survive. And rather than talk about this really quite, quite like important positive reform proposal, for what is still the kind of central communicative apparatus in the country, the liberal intelligentsia just ran around complaining about what was essentially in a, a completely made up threat to the BBC. It, w- it wasn't even just the liberal intelligentsia, you know, it was actually a combination of, yeah, relatively um, moderate, if you like, conservatives and, and liberals. And I think, you know, we, we've talked about this on the podcast before about, you know, some of the, the sort of... Um, dance between liberals and conservatives but even on this issue you know you see some crossover and some shared ground between um conservatives who recognize the bbc as being an important sort of instrument of of soft power and national prestige and the rest of it and the liberals who see its particular kind of editorial standards as being a preserver of civility and rationality in public life and and so these are the groups who who have this kind of panic response well i mean the the other element of it that i found a bit frustrating was that um and i I mentioned this to you uh recently was that the there there is not going to be any abolition of the license fee until 2027 it's precluded by the the current charter and it's not you're not allowed to review it in the, the mid-charter. So even if they try to do that, it would be struck down by the court. So there's absolutely no question as to whether the BBC can move to a subscription service. But as you said, it wasn't just that like there was that front page of the Times, which which yeah reported that, oh, well, you know, Johnson isn't as ideological as Cummings on this issue and all, and all of the rest of it. Um, there was also the fact that in that same article, it pointed out that Whittingdale, who's, you know, very anti-BBC um, figure, who was a, who's been appointed new culture secretary, isn't even very convinced by the idea of the BBC moving to subscription anyway. So it's not even clear that there's much of a worked out policy consensus in, in, in the Conservative Party yeah. as to what to do about the BBC. What yeah. is clear 
is that they want to further intimidate the BBC, um, uh, cut its funding and appoint a politically compliant chair who's going to appoint a politically compliant (laughs) director general. So what actually are the substantive issues at question here? Then number one, the um, influence that the uh, political elites have over the funding of the BBC. And number two, the influence that the political elites have over the powers of appointment. Well, these are the things that we've talked about on the show, but they're also the, the basic... Um, problems with the BBC's governance, which underline the proposals that Rebecca Long Bailey was making. So it's yeah. not, you know, this is the thing about this debate is that actually it's become it's 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 unhinged from the actual substantive policy issues at play. And yeah. it, you know, it, again, it just comes back to this sort of um, media political discussions as gossip, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's it's um, what is this sort of ghoul in number ten saying about about Auntie? You know, and it's just, you know, it's it's just it's kind of paranoid and sentimental. And I would I mean, I don't want to be the sort of let's look at the evidence guy because, but you know, that I mean, it would be nice to have a bit more. Sorry. What does the evidence tell us? (laughs) The evidence tells us that that, that there's not going to be a move over to subscription within this parliament, you know. Um, And the thing is, as well, that having had like like an enormous amount of um su- like support from the bbc during the election campaign the conservatives are of course turning around and saying how outraged they are about their unfair treatment right this is standard issue stuff right mm-hmm. it, it allows everyone to continue in this kind of fantasy world that the bbc is 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 balanced between left and right and anyone who thinks differently is is obviously delusional the bbc i'm afraid i th- I think it's clear that their coverage of the election is a national scandal. Um, they are—they have to take their, you know, take their responsibility for bringing us this this government. But of course, the right's response is not to thank them for their service, but to say how outraged they are at their unfair treatment and to threaten them with all kinds of things. And for for the for liberals to defend the BBC um, is. Uh, uh, you know, it's 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 this classic thing of wading into a culture war on completely the wrong terms. This is not this is not useful. It's not helpful. It's not evidence based. It's it's pure fantasy, and it's fantasy being promoted by people who chucklingly say, "Oh, full disclosure, obviously I do have a program on Radio Four that pays me handsomely." And it's just like, how on earth do you expect to defend the BBC? Um, from your perspective it's yeah i mean i think exactly that that, that, that's why when it comes to these debates you need to sort of take a step back and say well you know what actually are the principles at stake here um and and get away from this sort of you know fetishizing of the bbc i mean that's all all really that i I think needs to happen is for people to to talk about the bbc as as it actually exists and to think about you know how are we going to revive the, the the good elements of the BBC, or let's say the, the things that the BBC should be allowed to do, you know, if it had a different sort of structure, which is, of course, the arguments that, that we've both been making for, for a long time. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it, it's great to see that um, being put forward by a senior politician. It's not overly surprising to see it, see it ignored. Mm. Uh, but you know it's annoying i th- i think it just doesn't it just doesn't seem to fit into what they consider to be the story about the bbc which is the familiar one but the thing is what lies behind that familiar story of um the sort of performative tensions between the conservative right and the bbc is is another story which is that in the background the bbc has been pulled further and further and further to the right and we we've, we've both been making this argument that, you know if if the if the bbc continues on the trajectory it's on it's people on the left will not feel it's defensible and i think in terms of like how people sort of orientate themselves towards the current conflict you you have to also be starting from that that point of view which is that most people on the left and i would include you know sections of liberals as well in this who are angry for their own reasons with the bbc are not in any mood to come out swinging for the BBC. You know, it's yeah. just not. Yeah. Um, there, there is, you know, there's a positive energy there in terms of um, a response to the kind of um, 
bullying um, of the right, you know, yeah. which can, which I think can be channeled in positive directions, but it has to be based on an understanding of, of what this institution is and, and what we would like it to be. Until we get there, then I just think people are just going to be flailing around. Um, but yeah. I guess, you know, we'll see. We'll see how the how the. Um, how does the how the debate sort of starts to starts to unfold if it if it starts moving in in positive directions? Um, yeah, well, I we, think I think it is. This is kind of a litmus test for whether people want to wallow around in like soft-headed stupidity or whether they actually want to start thinking about politics. Like this is a, this is a good test. Like, are you willing? to like foreground any defense of the bbc with an understanding of what it is and with an understanding of what you want it to become in the digital age or do you simply want to just chunter on about fox news and this this like imported hallucinatory realm of you know trumpianism triumphant and so on that that seems to preoccupy an awful lot of liberal commentators when they talk about the media in this country right mm. do you actually want to talk about the media as a you know as a as a as, a, as an industry as a sector that has a that has, has a kind of parastatal role in our society do you want to talk about this as a as a, a collection of institutions that that basically make the state visible and comprehensible to the public or do you just want to like you say just chunter on about auntie in this mm -hmm. sentimental and frankly paranoid way because as you say they're conjuring up they're allowing the right to conjure up these imaginary threats that they can then use to to preclude thought right so they're turning around to the left and saying if you don't defend the bbc un unconditionally then you're, you know, you're objectively in favour of the the kind of the bringing of Fox News to the UK, and it's absolutely ridiculous. It is ridiculous. I mean, well, it's it's also a bit frustrating because I I felt to some degree in the last few years we'd we'd moved beyond this point because it was very much the default sort of argument when I set about researching the BBC and I suppose around the time that you published Return to the Public was, you know, this was basically the dominant view that you would encounter on the left. And I think interestingly, there has been some significant movement on this and where people are with the BBC. So I think whether this... I think this is partly, I mean, I think this, this is partly an attempt to, to push back against the kind of, like, the democratization agenda that um that we associate with corbyn mm -hmm. um which was very unpopular with a lot a lot of people in the mainstream of the labor party and and in their kind of guardian um auxiliaries um they are they are anti-democratic elitists and they they find all of that democracy chat completely horrendous and i think by insisting on defending the bbc in its current form i think this is an attempt to put Corbynism back in its box um, mm. and to do it on, you know, on a terrain where, you know, actually Corbynism has been quite weak. Um, there wasn't really a, a fully thought through um, plan for, for media reform um, between 2015 and 2019 yeah. um, in the Labour Party. And we, you know, we did our best to kind of push them in, in you know, towards getting one. But it seems to me that, that this idea that you're either with the, the unreformed BBC or you're objectively pro Dominic Cummings um, is exactly that's exactly the, the dichotomy you would want if you are a liberal elitist. Mm. Um, and as you say, we, we're, we're kind of being being pushed into this kind of Chapo type situation of just kind of berating the cluelessness. And it's it's you know, it's kind there's a kind of wiliness to how clueless they are because they're you know they're obviously going to lose but in a way that means they keep winning <laughs> well i think that the key thing with i suppose the core organizational core of liberalism is that they don't need to win politically really there's no, less at stake for them so keep their jobs and keep their keep yeah, their status their assets that's right so in 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 distinction to i suppose the, the 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 social base of the left there there is objectively less at stake for liberals and that and that's why they're they're willing to play these these kinds of high stakes i think anyway um 
we will come back to this uh, topic because I imagine it's not going away. There's a whole parliament ahead of us for Dan and I to um, observe and, and comment on the BBC. But um, yes, should we go to the interview now, Dan? Yeah, I think so. Unless there's anything else um, we want to touch on briefly. But I think we are. Well, I'm certainly all, all played out on that. Um, <laughs> yes. um, good. To be continued, go. I think. Yeah, exactly. I think there's, we've got plenty of time to um, to thrash this out. But um, but yes, everyone you know everyone has to stay steady. You know, don't accept this. Um, hold the nerve. This sort of liberal hold blackmail. Nerve, hold hold our nerves. Exactly. You know. Um, good. All right. So let's go to part two. Uh, the Daily Mail really stepped up their hostile coverage of trans people after the Leveson inquiry and um, Little John singled someone out and the person he singled out was a primary school teacher in Accrington who had recently decided to transition and gone back to work uh, in early 2013 as a woman um, called Lucy Meadows and the school had told the children and their parents uh, that this was happening uh, a local newspaper had reported a single parent saying that his young sons were too young to be dealing with this. Uh, and Little John picked this up and wrote a piece for the Mail called He's Not Just in the Wrong Body, He's in the Wrong Job. And he asked if anyone had thought about the devastating effect that Meadows' gender reassignment would have on her pupils. Um, not long after this piece was published, uh, Lucy Meadows killed herself. The suicide rates for trans people are very, very high. Um, a Stonewall uh, survey recently found that something like 46% of trans youth had attempted suicide at some point. Um, so the, the suicide rates are very, very high. Uh, and Meadows killed herself not long after this piece was published and she was being hounded by journalists near her home. Um, and a lot of commentators at the time, of course, lots of trans people on Twitter uh, were, you know, myself very much included, were absolutely furious about this um, and were relentlessly attacking the mail. I don't think Richard Littlejohn's on Twitter because I don't think you can do something that cowardly and have a Twitter account. It's very noticeable that a lot of these provocative, you know, arch, um, you know, kind of socially conservative journalists who defend everything they do on freedom of speech grounds, a lot of them aren't actually on Twitter, like Brendan O'Neill isn't, Richard Littlejohn isn't, uh, mm. Julie Butchell isn't, um, or not very openly. Um, and, you know, don't actually kind of face up to the sort of backlash that these pieces produced but a lot of journalists at that point kind of closed ranks and said look you can't blame little john or the male for this woman taking her own life and lots of people including me said no maybe not but it can't have helped um uh you know her you know the inquest into her death heard that her note had left no reference to this coverage she talked about debts her parents dying um someone she'd loved the stress of her job but the uh the coroner um you know said that Meadows' only crime must be different, and yet the press saw fit to treat her in the way that they did. Um, Little John's article uh, also vanished from the Mail's website with no explanation whatsoever. Um, and that felt like a bit of a nadir, mm. um, for the, uh, certainly for the um, Conservative press. And after that, it felt like there was a bit of an upswing again towards the, um, the Time magazine article, but also throughout 2014, there was this backlash. So another generation of journalists took up the sort of Bindle, Birchall, Greer uh, line about, you know, trans women in particular. They weren't so bothered about trans men. This line about trans women in particular kind of infiltrating women's spaces, um, appropriating uh, the identity of women um, and, you know, sort of questioning whether we should um, accept uh the identities that trans people use for themselves and of course you know what was happening here was that because writers like myself and others had reasonably successfully changed the terms on which this conversation was being um held discourse about trans and non-binary lives in the mainstream media uh you know their answer to that was to just sort of force the conversation back onto the very basics of you know, defend your right to exist rather than talk about, you know, how austerity is affecting uh, trans healthcare, employment, uh, you know, exacerbating the effects of prejudice, you know, the loss of mental health services, sexual health services, etc. for those who are particularly affecting us. 
um, you know, moving the conversation back onto the most uh, unfavourable terms. And this built up and up and up during 2014. Um, in particular, I wrote a long piece for the New Statesman, about 8,000 words, talking about the psychological effect this had on me, talking about the way that bad faith calls for debate mm. in a sort of liberal media scape like liberal editors who kind of were obsessed with hearing both sides of a debate but would never think about the terms of the debate and wouldn't think about whether that debate was taking place on a level playing field or not. Mm. Uh, I think with this sort of trans versus transphobic feminists conversation, sides see themselves as the oppressed, um, which, you know, obviously that never makes for a particularly uh, positive or healthy discussion yeah. anyway. Um, and I think if you had, you know, sort of section editors, television or radio producers didn't really understand the issues involved, then they wouldn't really know how to orient themselves within these conversations. But, you know, so 2014, I think a lot of trans writers and activists who had been making their presences felt within the mainstream media uh, sort of started to refuse invitations to these discussions. Um, I mean, some of the things I've turned down in my time, um, I got asked to go on BBC Radio and talk about comparisons that were being made between Rachel Dolezal, who was the American uh, activist white woman who um, pretended to be black, um, mm-hmm. um, built up a career as an anti-racist activist until she was exposed. Comparisons being made between her and trans people as a group. Uh, that was something I turned down. Um, I turned down a lot of other things um, a few years later. Maybe we can come back to that. Uh, but, you know, it it became basically untenable for me to continue writing for the New Statesman because they published so many pieces that, um, you know, questioned trans identities that the only way to justify continuing to write for them uh, was to, you know, just answer those arguments head on and basically just write the same piece over and over again in response to it, which is very, very boring for me. I mean, you know, I, I decided by this point that I was going to make a point of not doing that. And I thought it was a better form of activism, being a better kind of role model to write about other things, to say to young trans people, look, you can write about, you know, politics or sport or culture or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to write about your own identities and your own lives. I mean, it's way. interesting, isn't it? It's interesting that, that, that liberal insistence on a, a certain conception of pluralism pushes yeah, you becoming more and more kind of, you know, one dimensionally a writer who writes about, the, the right of trans people to exist you know what i mean it's like it's denying you the, the opportunity to to be just to be a writer um yeah. with a particular particular perspective um and a particular set of life experiences but a writer you know, can write about you know the, the the full cosmos and then it's like no no your job is to be the professional yeah. person who refutes the other articles that we publish yeah absolutely no i mean there's very much a conscious effort to create this hostile environment for trans people generally and one of the by effects of that intentionally or not was to yeah. create a situation where you you didn't really feel able to, or certainly I didn't feel able to justify writing about any other subject in this climate um, yeah. Yeah. and it was a shame because I'd really valued that space within the statesman to yeah and as you say it's not it's not we don't know what, what was consciously going on but that was the the sort of outcome yeah of that absolutely of- and the you know, the line of acceptability gradually moved further and further and further, uh, you know, in favour of these gender critical feminists, as they called themselves. Um, and this line would obviously get pushed in the pieces and get pushed further on Twitter in, you know, increasingly bad tempered arguments. Um, and, you know, you could see this discourse getting more and more unpleasant. Um, the point at which I decided to stop writing for the States and was when they published an article uh, comparing the behaviour of trans activists um, to the McCarthy witch hunts. Um, And it was always, you know, sort of trans activism was the thing that was demonised. You know, of course, trans people who weren't activists were fine. It was just the nasty activists who were pushing to be treated with, you know, basic dignity and respect. They were the ones that they hated. But of course, all trans people were activists, really. you know, anyone who just, you know, raises their voice at all is an activist. So setting up this sort of set of conditions where trans people are sort of treated as just inherently unreasonable and unpleasant um, and then provoked and provoked and provoked. And then when people respond to the provocation, these sort of, you know, 
our opponents would sort of turn around and say well told you that's what they're all like I mean Um, but the thing that really made me snap was this op-ed which didn't seem particularly unreasonable in and of itself Uh, and this was the thing it wasn't so much that all the individual articles were anywhere near as unpleasant as you know some of the older ones I've I've just mentioned but there was just such a barrage of them Mm. um and, you know, it was read that barrage was very much designed to force us out of the discourse. What particularly annoyed me with this article, um, which, you know, talked about a small subset of trans extremists imposing their definition of reality and their political agenda, including the principle that trans women are women on everyone else. What particularly annoyed me was only at the end that you were told that the byline was a pseudonym. Um, you know, I'd spent years revealing these very intimate details about my own life because I was told that readers were only interested in personal stories. If you wanted to talk about the political realities of trans living, you had to kind of smuggle it in to a personal story. Um, and I'd done all of that and revealed all this stuff that I could never get back. Mm. Um, and then you could have a writer who was too gutless to even put their own name to a piece, um, just basically trashing all of that work and all the work that other people were doing. Um, and this seemed indicative to me of a very kind of unequal balance of power and it reminded me that our ability to operate within the mainstream depended entirely upon the understanding and goodwill of editors and commissioners Um, and both understanding and goodwill were clearly an increasingly short supply and I just decided to cut my losses at this point. Well you say that but in many ways um, uh, the Cold War um, anti-communist establishment in the United States seems very similar to trans activists um in terms of their power i mean we've set up courts we've had people you know well it's it's not so much that it's the it's the vast military apparatus that uh, lurks in the background <laughs> that people you know when you when we talk about these issues we we do live in fear of being hauled up before <laughs> <laughs> well someone might call you a nasty name on twitter which is yeah, that is the same as going to prison or right. indeed, yeah, uh, so being marched to the gulag by the US Marines. Exactly. I mean, there, yeah, there is a sense, isn't there, that um, this has been um, this whole this this whole kind of historical moment has been complicated by the fact that people find it find it massively difficult when people disagree with them on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of this is quite personal, like a lot of the people who ended up becoming some of the more prominent anti-trans commentators were people I met uh, and quite liked in person, got on well with. And then they would, you know, they would write an article saying, well, I'm not sure about the things a lot of trans people are saying. Um, And then, you know, they would get like criticised for this on Twitter and often just kind of double down, you know. Um, And I at this point, you know, I saw that process happening. And my response to a lot of this at the time was to sort of defend the writers on personal grounds. Say, well, look, I've met them. They're all right. Like, you know, trying to basically give people a bit of room to get out of a corner. Um, But that strategy is not sustainable for that long. Um, And I reached a point where I I lost trust in the trans community because I was doing that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And also it wasn't rewarded by the conflicts de-escalating, like precisely the opposite. Yeah. Um, and it just became untenable for me, really, to be a trans writer in those sorts of publications anymore. I suppose it does. It sort of generalises in the sense in the sense that writers or journalists and opinion journalists in the past have really been hermetically sealed away from real time criticism. Yeah, uh, I mean, you could write, you could write an, uh, a letter to the editor. But again, it was entirely up to the editor whether they wanted to publish it or not. And the idea, you know, I think newsrooms have this culture that you've got the, you know, you've got the baying hordes outside um, and we don't really take them seriously. We feed them, feed them, um, uh, you know, the stuff they like. But if they if they dislike it, it's no skin off our nose sort of thing. It's only been very recently that the the kind of the the like the image of the all knowing author or the all knowing journalist has really sort of come under sustained pressure yeah Uh, i mean twitter has you know i think a lot of i did journalism as a profession has not come out of twitter very well Um, no but i think it's exactly that sense they they kind of came on to twitter thinking that they still held all the cards and then realized that 
you know, as other people pointed out, they keep, keep getting owned by teenagers with three followers. Do you know what I mean? Exactly, yeah, the sort of um, tankies with anime avatars. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll just sort of say, well, that's just, that's just, that's dumb, and it's, this is why. And it's, I think it's, it really plays havoc with their sort of amor propra. It's like, like, it's constantly, don't you know who I am, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, is, yeah, of... you're, I was going to say, you're sort of coming, I mean, I suppose from their perspective, like, you, you know you you want to um well you've got that advantage haven't you because basically you've got the platform so if you want you can just not engage right yeah. but on the other hand i think you do also want to feel like you can you know well, have some sort of status and the status does does transfer yeah. in some ways doesn't it because it, on twitter you can have loads of followers just by yeah. virtue of having a platform so yeah. it kind of yeah i think it kind of cuts both ways because like yeah, you can get humiliated. You'll see someone like Dan Hodges, like, you know, like he doesn't even need other people to, to, to <laughs> humiliate him. You know, he, do, he just does it of his own accord. But at the same time, like if you consider the, the weight he has on the platform, like it's, you know, Twitter's quite strange like that because like I think the respect doesn't transfer, but the status does a little bit. Yeah, that's interesting. Is obviously they, they, the people with a mainstream platform will have enormous reach uh, on Twitter as a consequence. But then, but there's still this kind of infuriating sense they must have that a conversation is going on about them that they have to, you know, they have to jump in because these people are, are wrong. Yeah, but and, you know, the other thing I think it is though, but like particularly with the sort of dynamics uh, that um, you've been discussing, Julia, is that you can you can actually just pick someone out lots of people on Twitter disagreeing with you saying stupid or nasty things. And if so, if you just want to, if you just want to make that argument that, okay, people are being aggressive and unreasonable towards me when I'm trying to be nice in my column, like any, literally anyone can do that. And like, I mean, like, you know, say like, obviously I like think and write a lot about the BBC. You get someone like Rob Burley will just take to Twitter and just find like someone really stupid. And you mentioned Alan Rusbridge doing this as well. And just be like, oh, look at this. Look at these people saying these stupid things. Or or in this debate, I guess it's kind of, you know, look at these people saying unpleasant or or uncivil things about me. You know, this is the yeah, kind I mean, of pressure I that I get. The brouhaha around, you know, Suzanne Moore and that Julie Birchall piece. And I, I don't really want to like, really kick into Suzanne for two reasons like one this is all quite a long time ago now and two you know I mean to go back to something I was just saying like I've had quite a lot of personal encounters with Suzanne and you know always found them actually quite interesting and you know not unpleasant um but you know Suzanne was getting a lot of kickback over this line in this article she wrote uh and you know a lot of the write-ups of this Twitter row elided um the things Suzanne wrote on Twitter that made people the most angry which was the line why don't you she said something like, I give up why don't you all cut your dicks off and be more feminist than me um and if that's your kind of salvo in an argument then of course the responses are going to mm. be you know angry and not particularly temperate um because yeah, that's the kind of terms so. you've set and that's my point with all this stuff really the terms that the mainstream media were setting for conversations about trans issues were deeply unpleasant um, but then, of course, you know, the reporting of the arguments that comes out of them very much characterises, you know, trans people who feel, you know, humiliated, ridiculed, undermined, invalidated on, you know, a daily basis by this constant at best drip and at worst barrage of coverage mm. uh, that they, you know, until quite recently haven't really had a chance to answer back to. Yeah. Um, and when they have had a chance to answer back to, people have really... Um, Double down. I mean, it'd be interesting to talk now about a few things that have happened, you know, in the last few years. You know, there was a gradual, again, just building up and up of um, of sort of transphobic newspaper coverage. Um, I think it might be interesting to focus on one particular story for a minute, mm-hmm. um, which was published at the beginning of 2017. Um, I'm reading Nick Davis's Flat Earth News at the moment, which I'm sure is very familiar to uh, you and to a lot of listeners here. Um, And, you know, uh, in the book, Nick Davis talks a lot about the lack of fact checking and the way that press association stories or just single stories from dubious sources can spread like wildfire through the media because people just don't fact check them properly um, and because the press isn't really accountable. And I talked earlier about the way in which, you know, the media treat trans people the way they do because they can get away with it. 
um, and because you know a lot of their journalists are transphobic. And in February 2017, uh, the Sun ran a headline um, about Ian Huntley supposedly transitioning in prison in order to get access to a women's jail. Uh, this was a kind of American right wing transphobic talking point. And of course, Donald Trump had just been elected in the US at this point. Um, and there have been lots of conversations about trans issues and supposedly the Democrats in the US being too trans friendly. And there were commentators saying this had cost them the election because, you know, they provoked um, they provoked the right by being too pro-trans. Um, but, you know, in the UK, um, the Sun, obviously, Ian Huntley uh, was a very specific choice uh, because, you know, trans people were being trans women in particular, their very existence being presented as inherently misogynistic, building up this idea that trans people's rights to self-definition, self-identification uh, undermined the category of women um, and was an inherently misogynistic thing to do. Um, so I think these journalists had picked Huntley, you know, very specifically because he had killed two 10-year-old girls um, in a very obviously notorious case in 2002. Um, and the son claimed that, you know, Huntley had told fellow inmates at Frankland High Security Prison to call him a feminine version of his name. Um, and they said he was buying makeup and using a female name, but they didn't clarify if he was cross-dressing or planning to transition. Um, you know, the implication here was that Huntley would be transitioning at the taxpayer's expense via the National Health Service. Um, so, again, it sort of ties in with, like, austerity narratives. Um they left that to the readers' imaginations, but the Daily Star then published several stories about Huntley wearing a blonde wig, asking to be called Nicola and demanding to be legally recognised as a woman. Uh, some of these claims were repeated in the Mail, in the Telegraph, the Daily Mirror, the Metro, and in uh, comment pieces for the Times, which, of course, you know, has always presented itself as the UK's paper of record and has published an awful lot of um, anti-trans stories over the last uh, four or five years. Um, the Sun published a picture of Huntley signing his name as Leon, but it turned out that the only evidence for this was provided by a single unnamed source, uh, an inmate, at the prison. Um, the Daily Star eventually published a three-line correction. Um, they wrote that Huntley does not own a wig, has never asked to be addressed by any name other than his own, and that there has never been any plan for him to change his gender identity. Hmm. Um, so the Star retracted this, but a lot of other newspapers either quietly um, apologize or just quietly unpublished the story some people left it up the daily express only retracted i think last week uh three years later so um you know obviously these papers know that their retraction their apology will carry far less weight than the original story uh, and i picked this one out because it's the most kind of extreme thing that's been said about us i think but um it's by no means the only thing yeah yeah interesting um we've been talking now for coming up for an hour and ten um before we finish i think it would be good to chat briefly about um how um issues surrounding trans liberation relate to uh, uh, other other aspects as it were of um the culture war um you mentioned earlier the 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 role that um uh section 28 and reactionary politics the role that played in the 1980s um i think i don't think it's um paranoid to think that particularly as uh, you know the targeted use of social media advertising means that particular elements of um uh, of people's anxieties can be targeted by reactionary politics. Um, and I think that, that will lead to um, renewed salience for, for these kind of culture war um, strategies. And I just wanted to sort of talk for us to talk a bit about how we on the left respond. Uh, I think there is a standing temptation towards abstention I think, you know, the idea that, oh, we could just let's ignore this and it will go away. We won't have to we won't have to get involved in this this area, which is complicated or or difficult in some way. Um, I think from the outset, I'd say that would be a, a, a huge mistake um, tactically. Um, there is no getting away from the culture war. It's coming for us, whether we like it or not. 
but I'm interested in hearing from both of you really, you know, how we do respond, as it were, as a political movement um, against the sort of mobilisation of reactionary tendencies, whether they take the form of transphobia or Islamophobia or um, or whatever else. Yeah, I mean, there was speculation in the run up to the uh, general election um, in December that the Tories were doing some polling and were going to try and use um, trans issues as a wedge, particularly in, you know, Labour's kind of so-called red wall. Um, But they were prevented from doing this partly by Labour being uh, quite ambivalent about trans issues, Um, you know, off the back of the planned uh, reformation of the Gender Recognition Act in 2018 that the Tories had consulted on. Uh, The consultation got shelved because there was such a big transphobic backlash, including in The Guardian. Uh, You had the astonishing thing of The Guardian UK publishing an editorial setting up this conflict between trans women and non-trans women. um, Basically taking all of it talking points from like transphobic groups um, and then siding against trans women in this conflict that they set up in the piece um, to the point where the US Guardian a few days later wrote back and said, look, we're trying to oppose Donald Trump's attempts to ban trans people from the military and to kind of mandate trans people out of existence. Um, and we can't get trans writers to write for us because they're boycotting the paper because he's been publishing these transphobic articles. And indeed, lots of trans writers in the UK, myself included, have been boycotting The Guardian since 2018 because of this material. Um, so that, you know, closes down a space where we would attack the right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a big problem. You know, the Labour manifesto for the 2019 election was also quite ambivalent about, um, you know, whether or not um, trans women should be allowed to enter single sex spaces, particularly transsexual uh, transsexual women. Um, and there was some argument about that. So that particular strategy got dropped. Uh, but obviously trans issues have been coming up quite a lot in the Labour leadership race at the moment, like Rebecca Long-Bailey, Keir Starmer and Dawn Butler have all quite unequivocally said that they recognise trans people's right to self-identification. Uh, Jess Phillips, Clive Lewis, Emily Thornbury have all apologised for like past positions on trans issues. Um, so, you know, the Labour Party, I think, is inching more towards a pro-trans position, um, although there are still some arguments about this. Um, And, you know, even Tribune published a piece by Laura Pidcock uh, this week, uh, which, um, you know, talked about the need to debate issues around trans identity, which, you know, is kind of a dog whistle towards these um, anti-trans lines of feminism. Uh, You know, Tribune has actually come out and, you know, is saying, look, no, the editorial lines were pro-trans. You know, these are Laura's positions. We don't agree with them. which is, you know, different to what the Guardian New Statesman have been doing, uh, taking an editorial line against us. But yeah, I mean, it does seem that, you know, with uh, the sort of culture wars around Brexit having been very successful for this revivified far right, um, you know, they will attempt to keep using the same tactic. Um, I mean, I would suggest, yes, like we cannot ignore this. Um, You know, the left has to be vigilant um you know a group like lesbians and gays support the minors gives you a fairly good model or lesbian and gays support the migrants that we've got now gives you fairly good models for um you know kind of solidarity between different groups on the grounds that you're all oppressed that maybe you're all um all targeted by austerity um you know the best of the movement against section 28 as well um all of these things are good good models for us really and I think yes um, you know transphobia has always been present on the left and the radical left I mean indeed the morning star is just as transphobic as a lot of other publications so getting these spaces uh, sorted out is um, is of paramount important to us importance to us I think in presenting a united front against against the right yeah yeah, yeah. I wonder about the question of um, sort of engaging with I, I, I mean I don't think it, there's any much whether opportunities or like point engaging with the right wing um, tabloids, obviously. But in terms of the te- television and broadcast, seems to in the last few years have moved much more towards a kind of, yeah, sort of contrarian kind of belligerent debates around uh, different sort of cultural issues. And I wondered what, what, what your feeling was in 
how to effectively intervene in those de- debates because I think you know that this broadens out actually from trans issues to other other issues as well in terms of I mean racism being the obvious one um if 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 there is any and if you did have any thoughts as to how useful it is or how usefully um the left can intervene in those kinds of debates yeah i mean one way is to you know set up our own publications i think that's increasingly important you know like one thing that you know trans people have learned and i think the wider left have learned over the last decade is that you know getting regular columns in you know liberal places like the guardian or the new statesman or you know getting onto the bbc occasionally you know in formats that are not of our own choosing like it's not enough we can't just like plow through this wave of hostility with just enough enthusiasm and um and numbers because you know we don't have control over those spaces so setting up more um media institutions that we have more control over i think is really important uh you know Mm. the new socialist for example has been very very good on um you know making sure they they don't publish people with a track record of transphobia um so those sorts of commitments of solidarity i mean certain publishing initiatives like galdem for women and non-binary people of color um you know i think will be increasingly good at like changing the discourse from the outside rather than the inside yeah um and that i think is is important as well um yeah it's increasingly clear that we are going to have to put pressure on these publications from the outside um and create spaces where we can build up um you know people of colour, LGBT people, etc., can build ourselves up as voices without having to constantly be pinned into the terrain set by our opponents. Yeah. Um, I think that's that's very important too. Yeah. Do you, do you think that, that that makes... I mean, I completely agree with that. And I think, you know, that, that applies much more broadly to, to, to left sort of um, communicative strategy, if you like. I just... Do you think it... Do you think it is worth... Um, uh worthwhile the left intervening in those kinds of um televised kind of uh you know shit shows basically of the sorts which seem to be much more you know very popular like particularly on like sky and yeah uh, i mean can i can i give an example of something that i got invited onto which was um during the during the gender recognition act consultation um you know the the pitch of transphobia in the british media reached you know reached its height and I got invited on several things that I turned down. Um, but one of these was um, a debate on Channel 4 called Genderquake. And the people organising the show had clearly read a lot of trans writers, probably myself included, who had explicitly questioned the terms on which these debates were set up. Um, and, you know, the sort of uh, binaries that were structuring them, you know, um, trans people saying we should have the right to exist and to have our identities recognized and to not experience prejudice versus no you don't um and you know the genderquake people wrote to me they clearly were aware of this because they wrote to me saying look this won't be a debate it will be a sensitive dinner style conversation about you know dinner party style conversation about you know contemporary trans identities and what they mean and how they're lived um and you know this immediately got my heckles up because i hate dinner parties but um you know i didn't trust them there was there was something just a little bit too um something about it didn't quite ring true and of course i spoke to them on the phone and i asked them who else they were getting on and they mentioned a couple of trans people and trans allies including ash sarkar who'd agreed to do the show um and then they asked me if i was willing to go on with someone like jermaine greer and i said no i wasn't um and at that point i opted out of doing the show i mean they offered to pay quite well enough me 800 pounds which you know was sort of not enough money to make it worth doing whatever happened but enough money to you know (laughs) you know i i you know i 800 quid like i don't you know it's not that would have you know for one night's work uh but i was very glad i i said no because i i watched the show i think my bergdorf was on it in the end but there was a group of like anti-trans feminists sat in the front row just like screaming the word penis at her every time she tried to speak uh which i don't know what kind of dinner parties these people are going to but um my hate to dinner parties is clearly uh clearly (laughs) um 
That's but exactly it was horrendous. Every and, single you know, dinner party I've ever been to, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's zone two most of these dinner parties. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a jungle out there. But um yeah, I mean I was very, very glad not to have been involved with that. So I do think that um you know, actually, you know, basically collectively striking against this sort of coverage is probably for the best. But the trouble with it is that they can mm. always find somebody who'll do it. Yeah. Um, you know, not everyone is in a position to turn down 800 quid. I was doing a funded PhD at the time. I'm not now. And if somebody offered me 800 pounds to do something like that now, I'd find it a lot harder to say no. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, I think people should speak out more about this stuff. And I think, you know, it's good for people on the left to amplify voices saying this is how these things work. Yeah, um, yeah. I really do think journalism in general would benefit an awful lot from people being more upfront about, you know, where their money comes from, how it's financially viable for them to exist in the profession. Yeah. Uh, basically, you know, just tear down the fourth wall as much as possible. I know people are scared of losing work if they do that, but I think the only way to um, to stop this kind of stuff happening is to speak up about it. Yeah, mm. I think that's really important. And, and again, it's a very recent thing that you can actually speak in an audible way about about as it were the you know the backstage areas you know what i yeah. mean like the, the the fact that you mentioned that you know what the fee was i mean this used to be like the fantasy used to be well people just they go on television because there's sort of people who appear on television and yeah. it's presented as being a world beyond sort of grubby market calculation and so on oh um, great yeah no absolutely not <laughs> but say so this is this is something that we we really we, we almost have, I think, a responsibility to be more open about. Yeah, exactly. And a part of that is about bringing attention to, like, yeah, working conditions and precarity within the industry, which is, you know, my impression is it's just so much worse, like, on anyone who's has any sort of op- oppositional politics. You know, you're you're always existing in this, like, position of... Matt, yeah, hugely marginalised. And so yeah. any kind of avenue that you think you might have onto the mainstream, you're very, very concerned about um about losing that tiny foothold which is why i'm going to bravely say that i was invited to go on the moral maze some time ago and i refused Mm. i said i'm not going all the way to canterbury for 70 pounds (laughs) (laughs) 700 70 pounds to go to canterbury and sit in a studio and be berated by david aronovich i thought i've got I've got better things to do with my that is, The moral maze is absolutely yeah. appalling as well. I, th- I mean, yeah. I, I honestly think it's the most reactionary program on the BBC, which is saying something. It is. Um, it is. Um, it, it's. It's a horrendous bear pit. Um, but yeah, let's tear down the veil, as uh, Robert Peston would have it. Um, <laughs> let's uh, let's reveal the inner workings. But yeah, talking about as you say, talking about the kinds of pressures that people with an oppositional politics come come you know are exposed to in their dealings with the quote unquote mainstream media i think is really important um because it's not these are not as it were natural processes they are no absolutely they are they are contrived situations they are professionally curated and the form of the curation i think is part of what we need to 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 be much clearer about on the left because if we're not careful we 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 end up really having a very very limited understanding of the media that exists, and therefore a limited understanding really of the media that we want um, that we want to create. Um, Juliet, we've been talking now for a little over an hour twenty, so I think we're going to. That's probably a good point to, to end, if that's all right. I think um, so. Yeah. Um... Yeah, Juliet, where where can people find you online? I think you're actually back. You're back on Twitter after a yeah, um, very grudgingly. Um, I really hate it. Um, I know. You do. I really, really fucking hate. No it. No one likes Juliet. We have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you can find me at uh, Zinoviev Letter That's uh, right. on Twitter. Um, which I think for people interested in the intersection of uh, media and politics, you know, will will ring a few bells. Um, you can google it guys yeah uh, do google there's an obvious letter it's very interesting uh also i mean i have a website at julietjakes.com you can find um all of my work there i am still doing a lot of journalism but these days i kind of pretty much do like art criticism or i write for kind of newer left publications like the new socialist tribune 
uh, and others. Um, you know, you won't see me at the Guardian or the New Statesman until they, you know, explicitly change their uh, their policy on trans issues. Um, but you know, I I think these things could be quite easily fixed. To be honest, I don't I don't think you know I I don't think those those publications are beyond saving at least not on this particular issue. So you know, I remain optimistic that they they can be sorted out. Well, that is a rare note of, of optimism generosity <laughs> towards the Guardian. <laughs> Yeah, not not not. And the new statesman. It's not particularly on brand. I'll be honest. Furious as I probably sounded throughout this podcast, or you know, quietly angry. um, I think I have a reputation amongst the trans community for being too accommodating to these people. So if that gives you an idea of like the level of anger within the community at the moment, then um, then yeah, you know, there is a way to go. But yeah, I I I think a solution to it is not as as difficult as it might sound at least not not on the sort of liberal left Juliet thanks again for joining us it's been a pleasure and um, we look forward to following you on Twitter great alright take care guys